Welcome to the Book Hub, an online event space hosted by Luther Seminary. In this episode, Karen Gonzalez presents on her book, The God Who Sees, Immigrants, the Bible, and the Journey to Belong. Karen Gonzalez is a speaker, writer, and immigrant advocate currently working in the nonprofit sector for world relief, uh, also uh, part of um, a participant, a student at Fuller Seminary, and I cannot highly enough recommend her first book, The God Who Sees, Immigrants, the Bible, and the Journey to Belong. This is an excellent one to discuss in a congregation. I've done it. It's very helpful. So Karen, um, I'm going to turn it over to you to just lead us in any way that you see fit. Thank you, Leanne. Appreciate that. Um, hello, everyone. Um, I want to tell you a little bit about uh, why I wrote this book, um, why this book matters to me. And I wrote this book because as I was reading and learning more about immigration from a faith perspective, particularly from a Christian perspective, I came to see and recognize that most of the books were not written by immigrants, but by those who care uh, deeply about us. I don't think there's anything wrong with that at all. I think people from the dominant culture can and should write um, about immigration, but there, um, but we immigrants can also tell our own stories. We can advocate for ourselves too. And I really wanted to add my voice because I believe that hearing the story from the lived experience of displacement brings a perspective that's really important. And so I shaped the book um, in narrative form. I was really inspired by Jesus who people would ask questions and he'd say, let me, let me tell you a story <laughs> about that. And so five chapters of the book are my own story of migration. And I moved from Guatemala to the U.S. and how that story intersects with my story of faith. And I tell that story through the five sacraments of the Catholic Church because the Catholic Church really shaped my early imagination of faith. And then throughout the book, um, I also weave in data on immigration and define important terms that people often hear but don't understand. And the other six chapters are narratives of immigrants who are found in the Bible, people like Ruth and Abraham and Sarah, and even uh, the Holy Family. And so what I'm going to read to you um, today is from a chapter called uh, Communion, and it is about my first communion. I really loved uh, Patrick's poem around communion. It reminded me of this time in my own life. So the first time I participated in the sacrament of communion, I was nine years old. I did not understand a single thing about the Eucharist, but I was too intimidated to ask questions. Those emotions, confusion, intimidation, bewilderment, became emblematic of my entire life of faith until I became an adult. The event itself wasn't just one day. It was the culmination of what seemed to me like hundreds of days. My friend Juanjo and I took classes every week 
at the Catholic Church of Santo Domingo, our neighborhood parish. Initially, about 10 kids from our neighborhood went to classes together, but gradually everyone except Juanjo and me dropped out. It was more fun to play kickball and other games than to walk all the way to the Catholic Church to take classes. So one day it was just Juanjo and me heading to class together. Taking all those classes in preparation for my first communion was reminiscent of waiting for my birthday or Christmas. It felt like an eternity. I don't remember any of these classes, but I know that I distinctly chose to pursue my first communion. The church requirement was that all kids were to have the knowledge and preparation needed to understand communion as a sacrament and to receive the body and blood of Christ with devotion. On the day of my first communion, I had no such understanding, but I went through with it anyway because I wanted to wear my pretty white dress and I wanted to know God. I didn't know how one gets to God except by being good and participating in the life of the church. Communion, it seemed to me, was an extremely important part of the life of faith and might help me find some peace and security in the midst of my ever-growing turbulent world. My feelings at the time were complicated. I mostly felt untethered and fearful, though I did not have the words to express these emotions. Guatemala at the time was in the midst of a bloody civil war that claimed the lives of more than 200,000 people. It was a war that began in 1960 and concluded 36 years later in 1996. In seminary, I would learn that the second largest population of Guatemalans outside of Guatemala City was in Los Angeles, made up of all the people who had fled during that time so they wouldn't become the casualties of that war. My father had already left for the United States and we had not seen him in almost a year. He left partly because as a self-proclaimed socialist, he was in danger. In the political situation in, the, in Guatemala in the early 1980s, he might've been considered a dissident, but he also left because the political turmoil had destabilized the Guatemalan economy. Jobs were few and hard to come by without the right connections. He moved to Rhode Island where his own mother and siblings lived and he sent us money and letters. In those letters, he made drawings of each of us and encouraged us to be good and listen to our mother. But I wasn't reassured by his letters. I had overheard the hushed conversations between my parents and their friends before my father left. Whispers about people who had disappeared. Some of these were people they worked with or had gone to school with. Even at eight years old, I knew that might have been my father's fate as well if he had chosen to leave. Along with my father's leaving came the announcement that my family couldn't afford to send me to Catholic school anymore. I would now have to go to the public school. In fact, we were struggling so much financially that we would have to borrow my communion dress, veil, gloves, and all the other regalia from our neighbor across the street 
my friend Anna Cecilia, whose mother had graciously offered the use of her dress. Anna Cecilia's mom and my mom were friendly and often chatted casually. It was at Anna Cecilia's house that I overheard my mother say that she wasn't excited about my sudden interest in religion, but that she wouldn't prevent me from pursuing faith either. She added that she was happy that I was at least staying out of trouble and spending afternoons in the church. But it was clear that she couldn't figure out why I was so committed to exploring a faith that she and my father had left. Once I had everything I needed to participate in the ceremony, I was ready. In my borrowed dress, I held a candle and a little prayer book in my gloved hands. I knelt in front of the priest and took communion for the first time. I don't remember if I felt closer to God at that moment, but I knew this was an important step. Surely now, God would help me to figure out how to pursue a life of faith, I thought. But my communion preparation classes were entirely disconnected from my lived reality. What did it mean to drink a tiny bit of wine and eat a tasteless wafer? How could wine and bread matter in light of everything that was happening around me? When I was in high school, my American history teacher invited four Vietnam veterans to our class to talk about their experiences in the war. They were all men about my father's age and some were fathers of students in the class. One of them talked about the shock of seeing a dead body for the first time and how that experience changed him. Seeing me in that classroom along with my classmates, most of whom were white, our veteran guest couldn't have guessed that I had seen my own share of dead bodies in Guatemala. They discussed a different war with different objectives, but the result was the same. Lots of innocent people died. While I was not a combat veteran, I identified with some of their experiences, but I did not say so. I didn't want to let it be known that I was any different from the rest of my classmates who had only seen make-believe deaths in war movies and on TV shows. And that's the end of my reading selection. Wow, Karen, that is, um, that gave me chills. Uh, I hear additional ways to get into immigrant stories in faith communities, and that is talking about trauma. Um, as you go out and you are a speaker um, for many events, do people come up to you and talk about similar stories they've had, even if they didn't relate to immigration? Yeah. Um... Yes, and what I find most surprising about it is that it's people from all different places across the globe. You know, I've had, um, when I've gone to colleges, I've had African students um, come up to me. I've had students from the Middle East, students who were refugees. So 
yeah, it's a point of connection. The, the act of migration itself has trauma connected to it. But so do the push factors for migration, right? Uh, I am personally, I should not be surprised, but I am surprised at what a broad conversation we've had here today. Um, immigration is certainly not one issue or one story. And you uh, all have shown that there are so many um, ways to bring up these stories in our congregations and in um, conversations with family members and engaging the news as well. Thank you.